Our third scripture reading this morning comes from the letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 7 and 11 through 16. God has given his grace to each one of us, measured out by the gift that is given by Christ. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. His purpose was to equip God's people for the work of serving and building up the body of Christ until we all reach the unity of faith and knowledge of God's Son. God's goal is for us to become mature adults, to be fully grown, measured by the standard of the fullness of Christ. As a result, we aren't supposed to be infants any longer, who can be tossed and blown around by every wind that comes from teaching, with deceitful scheming, and the tricks people play to deliberately mislead others. Instead, by speaking the truth with love, let's grow in every way into Christ, who is the head. The whole body grows from him as it is joined and held together by all the supporting ligaments. The body makes itself grow in that it builds itself up with love as each one does its part. The word of God for the people of God. Author of life, we thank you for your words, and we ask that your spirit would be with us this morning as we reflect upon them, so that we might be transformed in heart, mind, and soul. Amen. So far, in looking at the variety of spiritual gifts contained within the body of Christ, We've talked about ways that we can be the hands and feet of Jesus, and we've talked about the ways that we can move people's hearts and minds. This week, we're going to be rounding out our discussion by looking at one last category of gifts. These are the gifts that help the body of Christ to find its vision of the world and the voice with which it speaks. The first gift that Paul names in today's reading are those who would be apostles. And there are a few ways for us to think about this gift. Probably the first thing that comes to mind for many of us are the 12 apostles, the closest and most trusted disciples of Jesus Christ. These 12 followers of Christ serve as an illustration of how we could translate the Greek word apostolos as amb ambassadors or envoys. They were the people that Christ picked to serve as his primary messengers in his stead. We may also think of Paul, who is referred to as the apostle to the Gentiles, because he's the leader of the early Jesus movement, tasked with carrying the message of the gospel to non-Jewish peoples around the Mediterranean. And by speaking about this group of individuals, who bear the responsibility for guiding the early movement, we're also getting at another way of thinking about what it means to be an apostle. To be an apostle can be understood as carrying the authority of those ancient leaders. If you've ever heard of the idea of apostolic succession, this is what is meant. And churches that claim apostolic succession are making a claim to have inherited the authority to lead and guide through a chain of leadership that goes back to the apostles themselves. 
Orthodox churches and Roman Catholics have the most evident claim to this form of authority. But some Protestants, such as Anglicans and Lutherans, can also make a claim to this type of authority as well. As United Methodists, our lack of a genuine claim to apostolic authority is one of the sticking points as we seek to enter into a full communion agreement with the Episcopal Church. Nonetheless, there is some effort at maintaining an apostolic-style authority as bishops and elders of the church strictly supervise and test any new clergy person before conferring authority upon them. And even so, as United Methodists, when we recite the Nicene Creed, we declare our faith in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. So if our claims to historic apostolicity are tenuous at best, how can we in good faith affirm this belief? Tyron Inbody, a professor of theology at United Theological Seminary in Dayton, Ohio, offers this way of thinking about what it means to be apostolic. He writes, A church is apostolic when all of its members, in all of their roles and offices, remain in continuity with the prophets, with the ministry of Jesus, and with the continuing apostolic witness of the New Testament and its proclamation of the gospel. So to whom does the task primarily fall for ensuring that all members of the church remain in continuity with Jesus Christ, the law, and the prophets, those who have the gift to be pastors. While bishops and other Episcopal leaders may have the apostolic task of affirming the calling of ordained clergy, it is pastors who actually carry out the work that Paul describes as equipping the saints for the work of ministry. In the American church, we've developed some interesting ideas about what it means for a person to be a pastor. Somewhere along the way, we got the idea of the pastor as CEO, a post that has been making its way around social media that's attributed to Eugene Peterson sums this up well by stating, the vocation of pastor has been replaced by the strategies of religious entrepreneurs with business plans. This vision of the pastor sees them not just as a spiritual leader for a flock, but also a business leader as well. It elevates the tasks of capital campaigns, marketing, and program development to be on par with the task of spiritual development and discipline. It's this line of thinking that leads to the mistaken notion that it's a pastor's job to keep people happy based on the depths of their pockets rather than to keep people obedient to Jesus Christ. The primary task for pastors is to encourage growth in the entire body of Christ. The author of Hebrews uses the metaphor of moving away from the milk of spiritual infancy to the real food of spiritual maturity. Pastors are thus presented with the task of challenging their flocks to move to a different place than where they currently are. As Paul says, we must no longer be children tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming. 
And really what Paul is saying here is that it's not a pastor's job to spoon feed their flock easy answers. It's their job to give them the tools to think critically about the faith that they have been received into. To equip people to tell for themselves whether what they are being told is the truth of the gospel or not. To be able to distinguish false teachers and false prophets from the apostolic faith of Jesus Christ. There are many who claim to speak for God. But those who possess the rare gift for actually calling the church and society back to the gospel are the ones that we call prophets. The prophets are the moral voice of the church. They are the people who are uncompromising in reminding us that to follow Jesus Christ is to work for justice so that we will see the days when justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And the work of prophets is rarely work that is appreciated. Elijah fled into the mountains of Judah after being threatened with assassination. John the Baptist lost his head. Jesus Christ was nailed to a cross. The work of a prophet is dangerous business. It means confronting head-on the powers and principalities that reside in the places of influence. And we can see in our own age how the work of prophets continues to be rejected. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated for his prophetic work. And what we have to keep in mind is that the year that he was murdered, a poll showed that nearly 75% of Americans disapproved of Dr. King. He had never been a popular figure, but he was more of a threat than ever at the end of his life. As his career progressed, he had expanded his prophetic task beyond the scope of racial reconciliation. He had also started to speak out against the war in Vietnam. He had spoken out against capitalism. In fact, he was in Memphis to support a sanitation workers' strike when he was gunned down. But Dr. King had never been a popular figure. When he sat in a Birmingham jail cell, a group of white religious leaders who thought of themselves as moderates published a statement condemning his work as untimely. The so-called white moderates supported some vague idea of civil rights, but did not approve of black people actually engaging in demonstrations to secure their rights. Another prophet of our near past who spoke to the isolation of prophets was Dom Helder Camara, an archbishop of the Catholic Church in Brazil from 1964 to 1985, Camara envisioned the church serving those on the margins of society. One of the most well-known quotes attributed to him is, when I give food to the poor, they call me a saint. When I ask why the poor have no food, they call me a communist. In speaking out against the military dictatorship that ruled Brazil, Camara exposed himself to calls for his arrest, even from other Catholics. Camara wrote a short book titled, The Desert is Fertile. This book is a pastoral comfort to those of faith with the gift of prophecy. In chapter 7, 
the inevitable desert, he writes about the isolation that prophets experience. So let me read for you a portion of this chapter. There are times when we look about us and feel we are an awkward friend. People who welcome us are suspect. They want our friendship, but they are afraid of being compromised by our reputation. We feel we are speaking in a desert, as did all those who were active in the cause of justice before us. Injustice spreads and becomes worse. It has two-thirds of the earth in its grip. Only the stones listen, or men with hearts of stone. Our weariness spreads from the body to the soul, which is worse than any bodily exhaustion. We must not trust in our own strength. We must not give way to bitterness. We must stay humble knowing that we are in the hands of God. We must want only to share in the making of a better world. Then we shall not lose our courage or our hope. We shall feel the invisible protection of God our Father. If we need an example of what this trust in the strength of God looks like, we could turn to the Reverend Dr. William Barber II. If you've heard about the Moral Monday movement or about the resurrection of Dr. King's Poor People's Campaign, then you've heard about Reverend Barber's work. He's also worked with red-letter Christians as they travel around the country holding revivals. Reverend Barber is a passionate preacher whose calls for revival and repentance tackle head-on issues of white supremacy and fiscal austerity. He's an irrepressible voice in the public sphere who's been arrested a number of times for leading protests at the North Carolina State House. If all you saw was the resume of his prophetic work, you would never guess that he has a spinal condition that makes it painful for him to stand or walk. When reporters ask him about his physical condition, Reverend Barber jokes that God must have a sense of humor to call on someone who has difficulty walking to lead marches. But even as he's able to joke about his pain, he's able to be honest about how tiring the work of justice can be. In one recent speech, he shouts at his audience as he says, you don't know how tired you get sometimes. Carrying the weight of your matters is heavy, not just on those to whom it is proclaimed, but to those who proclaim it. It's heavy. But the word of hope at the end of this thought are three words that Harriet Tubman asked to Frederick Douglass when he got tired. Is God dead? The prophets know that God is not dead, and so they have the energy to work for justice in the world. But the prophets are not the only ones able to proclaim the good news of the living God. All those who are blessed with the ability to share the good news are given the gift to be evangelists. Now there may be a few different things that pop into your head when you picture what an evangelist looks like. You may think of those televangelists who promise that all the rewards of heaven can be yours, and all it takes is a recurring donation to help them get their third private jet. 
Or you may think of something a little closer to home. The folks who walk up to your door one day and start asking if you have time to talk about Jesus Christ. I know this image of evangelism strikes true to my own experience. When I was in college, I had friends in Campus Crusade who would get together each week to walk through the halls of the dorms, knocking on people's doors to see if they had time to talk about Jesus. I also know that they rarely got a positive response. And I know from some of my unchurched friends that when they see those kinds of folks in a mall or on the sidewalk, they make sure to get as far away from them as possible. And I'm not saying that talking to new people has no place in evangelism. What I am saying is that the good news of the gospel seems more inviting if you have a reason to believe that the person talking to you actually cares about you. You know who people are willing to listen to? Their family, their friends, people who have already shown that they want to have a relationship with the person for who they are. People don't want a gospel that can be sold to you in just a few minutes on their doorstep. The good news of the gospel has to be proclaimed in word and deed together. The best way to show someone the good news of the gospel is to live a life that bears the fruit of God's love. Bishop Tracy Smith Malone of the East Ohio Conference once said something that has stuck with me. Changed lives change lives. If people see the good news in the way that you live, they'll be more receptive to hearing the good news in conversation. So evangelism isn't just a gift that belongs to folks on television or to those who go door to door looking for converts. Evangelism is a gift that makes itself known in those who are able to befriend and assist their neighbors. It shows up in the kind of people who are always willing to lend a helping hand. It appears in the smiles and laughter of those who radiate the joy of Christ. God's people have many gifts. We are blessed by those who remind us that the good news of the gospel is about our relationships with people. We're blessed by those who call us to be accountable to God's justice. We're blessed by those who are able to empower those around them. And we are blessed by those who keep us united in our witness. Just as we need the hands and feet to serve the world, and just as we need the head and the heart to draw us closer to God, we need a vision and a voice to keep us moving forward together. Amen. Would you please pray with me? God of the many, bind us together as one. Keep us faithful to your law. Fill us with the joy of your love. Inspire us to action. Let your vision for the future be seen through the words and deeds of your holy church. Let your voice be known through our witness. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.